0: Thank you for staying tuned. My name is Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, and this is a commentary on Parashat Behukotai. We are in the final portion of the book of Leviticus, and we are on the written notes uh, around the top of page three if you're following along with the written notes. We've, we've, we've introduced this concept of um, that, that, that God gives blessings and God allows curses to come into our lives based on our obedience and disobedience to his words. And God's desire is that we be blessed. And so as we walk into obedience, which is our side of the covenant, our agreement to the Mosaic Covenant, remember Israel said all that you have said we will do in Exodus chapter nineteen, as we walk into obedience, God sends blessings And conversely, as we walk into disobedience, then God releases the curses. And remember, um, a good principle that's that's rooted in the text is that a curse without a cause cannot come. So if you feel curses coming into your life, you have to stop and ask yourself, what am I doing or not doing that is allowing God to release the the lack of blessing in my life? God's not directly cursing you. You're doing it, to to use modern terminology, uh, vernacular, you're bringing it on yourself. And that's the whole point of the first part uh, to my commentary in Part A. We've also seen that Jews are responsible for other Jews. And in this day and age with the um, advent of the Apostolic Scriptures and such, I might add that Jews are responsible for Gentiles and vice versa, especially if we are both covenant members. Those who are not inside of the genuine covenant made with Yeshua, um, I can understand how they might not want to reach out to one another. In other words, the world has their own um, maxims and one of the world's sayings is that you know teach his own. Um, I'm an island unto myself, and I got to look out for myself. Look out for number one. Get all I can, can all I get, etc., etc. Well, we in the Messianic community should not think that way. We should be practicing the principle of um, of arvus, which is similar to the principle kol Yisrael aravim Each individual Israelite is here and there, where Israel is here and Israel is there, um, and we 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 look out for one another. And uh, and to be sure, the things that we do today affect the future generations. Thus, arvus is the, um, the the concept of joint responsibility. We learned all of that in Part A. In Part B, let's talk about this idea that the Torah doesn't present spiritual blessings. Because that's what I challenged us with in Part A. Or at least I introduced the notion that, this, that the Torah offers us, the Torah of Moshe, offers us physical blessing, it offers us material blessing, uh, the principle of sowing and reaping, but spiritual blessing is not part of the package if we simply do. Now let me explain. And in order to explain this a little further, I want to turn to one of our um, deceased Torah teachers, one of my personal favorites. Uh, she has some very excellent notes, some Gileanot, uh, uh notes or papers that she's written. Uh, Nechama Leibovitz, may, her, uh, may she rest in peace. She's going to help us see that the rabbis of antiquity also wrestled with the passage that we're about to read, Leviticus chapter 26, the parashat uh, to the, uh, which the concept of divine re- rebuke or tochacha. Is introduced. Now, before tackling the issue of why spiritual reward is not listed with the blessing of this chapter, we first notice the arrangement of the two main features of the parasha, okay? Liebavitz comments in her Gilia note, the parashat Buhukotai, quote, Our parasha thus reflects the principle which our sages discern through the scriptures, whereby the measure of divine goodness outweighs that of divine Retribution, and um, you can see her reference from uh, the from the Talmud there uh, to Masechet Yoma, daf 76a. There's likewise an asymmetry between the prerequisites of the blessings and those of the curses. Now it's important. Let me just insert this this concept that we also notice this feature. God does does not just arbitrarily bless us and curse us based on um, whether or not he's having a good or bad hair day, as, as Pastor Norm would say. God blesses us and curses us based on His grace and mercy. Yes, that's true, because we don't deserve any of the blessings that He gives us. But watch this. If we are disobedient, you bet we deserve the curses. Oh yeah, that's our fault. We bring that upon ourselves. So we must see the prerequisites of the blessings and the curses, okay? Um, Before the blessing, the Torah states, quote, in chapter 26, uh, Pasuk 3, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, the Hebrew says, If you walk in my statutes, the very first word in the Hebrew, im, is if. Notice there's a prerequisite. But before the curses of the Torah, in Pasuk 14, let me just turn to that, um, in verse 14 it says but if you will not hearken to me and will not do all these commandments the Hebrew says if you do not now notice both verses both Pasuk 3 of chapter 26 6, and Pasuk um, 14 of chapter 26 begin with the same Hebrew word im which means if. Let's see. Uh, do not do these commands. There we go. Um, and then also, um, 26 verse 15 says, "If you reject my laws and spurn my rules, so that you do not observe all my commandments, and you break my covenant." I mean, again, verse 15 starts out, "Be'im Bahukotai tishma asu." The im, if you. Uh, reject my laws and spurn the and it keeps going. The im et uh, mishpatai, the and if we've got all these qualifiers to um, the, the 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 information that's going to follow afterwards. Now the standards applied to the blessings evidently differ from those related to the curses. Thus, the curses are not to be administered upon mere transgression of the laws, but only upon despising and abhorring them, as noted by Sephorno. Let's look at what the Sephorno has to say. He says, quote, If you shall despise my statutes beyond mere violation, you will despise them. And he goes on to say, And if your soul loathe my judgments, he's commenting on the terms, and if your soul loathe my judgments, which he says is. Consciously, i.e. loathe them as one might willfully spew out something objectionable, and then um, um, and he he has further comments, but we're not going to look at all of them thus the the preconditions of the blessings radically differ from those of the curses. Now we still have conditions and that's the point I'm trying to make in bringing out these sets of details in the passages God will bless us if we walk into his ways. Now, obviously, walking into his ways is predicated upon a love for him, as we read in the Shema. Here it is where the Lord our God, the Lord, is one, and, the Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. By loving the Lord your God and following his ways, God then will send blessings into our lives. But watch the reverse. is true. If we loathe, the Lord and despise his statutes, loathe his judgments. Before we even disobey, there's a problem with the heart. And that is the challenge that the Nechama Leibovitz is trying to get us to see here. She continues by listing the opinions of various sages. But the blessings as such, that is to say, chapter 26, verses 1 through 13, give rise to a different and more complex question variously posed by our commentators. Now she's going to quote off one, two, three commentators and show their questions. right. first question was from Rabbi Yosef Albo in his Sefer Halkarim, 39 and 4. The question is this. Jewish authorities throughout the sages have never ceased puzzling why the Torah omits to specify any spiritual benefits alongside the material gains that it lists. Moreover, the Torah, since the Torah does not mention the spiritual benefits which constitute the principal reward, why does it elaborate the material benefits which are not the main reward? First question. Second question that the... Um, Leibovitz brings in the name of the other rabbis. The second rabbi is Rabbi Yitzhak Arama in uh, Akidat Yitzhak B'Chuchotai. He writes his question or his his statement or challenge quote, adherents of religion who believe in divine reward and punishment for those who please or anger God respectively assail the Torah's silence concerning the spiritual remuneration that constitutes the chief aim of the Torah which holds up transitory material rewards as the goal of those obedient to its laws good challenge. And then finally we have one more question or challenge from Rabbi Itach um, Abarvanel uh, in B'chukotai 26. He writes, Why does the Torah confine its goals and rewards to material things? As mentioned in his comment and omit spiritual perfection and the reward of the soul after death, the true and ultimate goal of man. Our enemies exploit this text and charge Israel with denying the principle of the soul's judgment in the afterlife. End quote. Okay, Now, um, These important questions that we are looking at as to, uh, you know, the way the the sages worded them, I mean, why doesn't the text just tell us how can we gain eternal life? Now, those of you who are familiar with reading the Apostolic Scriptures know how the answers are posed. Faith in Yeshua, genuine trusting in the Messiah. But why doesn't the Torah just say that as well? Why do we? Why does God seem to just go out, go and tell us, "If you obey, then I'll give you the land. If you obey, I'll bless your your crops. If you obey, I'll bless the fruit of your body, and, and and on and on the Torah goes." If we are to understand one of the primary purposes for giving and doing the Torah, we need to understand these questions as well today. Now, again, I'm speaking to people in my podcast, people reading my commentaries, people of the Torah communities of today that I believe are already pro Torah. They're Torah positive, they're Torah respectful, people who have not bought into the lie that the Torah has been done away with or that the Torah is no longer relevant for our lives. I'm assuming that the people who are listening to my podcast right now are already peering into the pages of the Torah and asking them themselves the very same questions that I'm posing in my commentary. Now, before I give my opinions as a Torah teacher later on in my own commentary, I still want to share the opinions of one of the greatest sages in Israel's past. and Of course, this is Maimonides. I chose Maimonides because he's my favorite. I like Rashi, too. Rashi's good. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki. But Maimonides is near and dear to my heart. Um, I've done a report on him for my leadership training school studies in, at the Harvest, and I just fell in love with the guy. I love Maimonides. He's the one, by the way, who put together the list of the 613 that I use on the website. Maimonides is also known as um, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, our son of Maimon, his father's name. Um, Maimonides is also known as the Rambam. That's an ac- acronym spelled, uh, taken from his name, from Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Rambam. Some people call him Maimonides, some people call him the Rambam. Okay? In uh, the Mishneh Torah, a code of Jewish law, which was compiled between 1170 and 1180 while the Rambam was living in Egypt, um, he's going to give us some information and this, by the way, this, this um, Mishnah Torah this code of Jewish law is regarded as Maimonides' magnum opus All right? uh, I'm just pulling a quote from Wikipedia Wikipedia is a great online source if you just want to get an overview of many of the um, things that I'm talking about just type in the phrase Mishnah Torah uh, or Maimonides and you'll find it either way and so I'm pulling a quote from the uh, Wikipedia right now as far as describing what the Mishnah Torah is uh, the work itself consists of 14 books which subdivide into sections, chapters, and paragraphs. And to this day, it is the only post-Talmudic work that details all of Jewish observance, including those laws which are only applicable when the Holy Temple is in place. Quote. And again, that was taken, if you look at my footnotes, the bottom of page 5, number 6, was taken from the Wikipedia article on the Mishnah Torah. Now, um, dealing with the laws of repentance, that is to say, teshuva, that's repentance, um, in Book 1 of his Mishnah Torah, he comments on this perplexing issue of the um, of the Torah. So let's pick up the quote from the Mishnah Torah. And I'm pulling this... Uh, I don't have a linear Mishnah Torah. Instead, again, I'm relying on an online con- commentary. If you look at the footnote to number 7 down at the bottom of page 5, this is from www.panix.com. And again, if you're using the written notes, just click on the link in the footnote and it'll take you straight to... Um, the online version where I pulled this information. This is Maimonides' Mishnah Torah. okay? And again, this is not the concept of, of how repentance has a bearing on rewards in this life, but the question to still ask, where are the rewards for the life to come? Quote, once it is known that a reward is given for fulfilling commandments and that the goodness which we will receive if we follow the way of God as mentioned in the Torah is life in the world to come. Um, let me let me read that again. I I, I think I, I skipped something. Quote: Once it is known that a reward is given for fulfilling commandments, and that the goodness which we will receive if we follow the way of God, as mentioned in the Torah, is, and the Torah is life in the world to come, as it is written. Quote that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your life, end quote, and that the revenge which shall be unleashed upon the wicked people who disregard the righteous mannerisms as mentioned in the Torah is excision, as it is written. Now again, whenever Maimonides says, as it is written, or Kakatuv, um as it is written, refers to the Torah. Sometimes it'll say, Amar, as it is said, and that is usually referring possibly to the Torah, but oftentimes it's also referring to the sages themselves. But now Maimonides is quoting the written Torah, where he says, as it is written, that soul shall utterly be cut off, his iniquity shall be upon him. Then Maimonides goes on to say, or ask, actually, then what is it that is written in throughout the Torah that if one listens, one will receive such and such, and that if one doesn't listen, such and such will happen to one, as well as all earthly matters such as plenty, famine, war, peace, monarchy, humility, living in Israel, exile, success, misfortune, and other uh, conventional matters. There's his question. Now he's going to answer. All these matters were true and always will be, Whenever we fulfill the commandments of the Torah, we will receive all good earthly matters, and whenever we transgress them, all the mentioned evils will befall us. Nevertheless, the goodness is not all that the reward for fulfilling commandments consists of, and the evils are not, all, are not the entire punishment received by transgressions. In a second paragraph, he goes on to explain, This is how all matters are decided. The Holy One, blessed be He, gave us this Torah, which is a support of life, and anybody who does what is written in it, and knows that everything contained in it is complete and correct, will merit life in the world to come. He will merit a portion in, the, in, in proportion to the magnitude of his actions and to the extent of his knowledge. The Torah assumes us, assures us that if we fulfill it with joy and pleasure, and always act according to it, then all things such as illness, war, famine etc which could prevent us from doing so will be removed and all things such as plenty peace riches etc which will aid us in fulfilling the torah will be influenced to come our way so that we will not have to occupy ourselves in all, all day in obtaining bodily needs but that we will be free to sit all day learn and gather knowledge and fulfill commandments in order to merit life in the world to come. He concludes by saying this, In this vein, it is written in the Torah, after the assurance of goodness in this world, and it shall be accounted virtue in us if we take care to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Obviously, now I don't know if you caught that in the way I read it. You may have to go back and read it for yourself. Maimonides, let me just summarize. Basically, is explaining that if we do what the Torah says, then the blessings will come. But if we don't do what the Torah says, then the curses are released. That part I agree with. But then he also talks about in the second paragraph that um, that if he does what the Torah, if he does what is written and knows that everything contained in it is complete and correct, he will merit life in the world to come. Now, obviously, as a Messianic Jew, I disagree with his implied conclusions for keeping the Torah. Okay, don't get me wrong. Maimonides was a great man and far more scholarly Torah uh, teacher than I am. Okay, He, 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 could, he could teach t- circles around me as far as Torah is concerned. However, the Spirit of the Holy One reveals to all who earnestly seek the truth, and find it an Yeshua, by the way, that keeping the commandments for the sake of forensic righteousness amounts to legalism. I talked about this in, um, in, uh, in the previous Torah portion, to Bahar we don't keep the commandments so that we can inherit life in the world to come. Although, there is an ingredient of the commandments that will merit life in the world to come, and that ingredient is faith, or genuine faithfulness to the God who gives the Torah. So, I do not espouse to legalism, that is to say, if I were to couch it in these terms, if I do, God will reward. That's the legalism that I avoid. On the contrary, I firmly believe that forensic righteousness, now when I say forensic righteousness, Christianity calls this um, um, justification, or some people call it positional righteousness. It's really just a fancy word for saying salvation. Forensic righteousness is only obtainable by placing one's unreserved trusting faithfulness in the sinless atonement provided by Yeshua HaMashiach. So I stand by my own conclusions. And my own conclusions are based on an understanding of the writings of the Apostolic Scriptures, um, which I'm just going to make a quote. Um, actually, I'm going to make a quote from the Torah here in a moment, but let me just explain that the Apostolic Scriptures do not contradict what the Torah teaches. Rather, it's a misunderstanding and a misapplication of any Torah passage that would lead an individual to believe that if I do XYZ, I will merit a place in the world to come. So let's pull a quote from Leviticus again. Um, um, with with Leviticus in mind, let's pull a quote from another one of my commentaries. And I didn't footnote it, so I'm not sure exactly which commentary it came from. But here's the quote. The Torah is not teaching its adherents to follow it in pursuit of spiritual well-being that is eternal life. Okay, Let me just put it plainly. God did not give the Torah so that you can gain eternal life. The Torah is simply not a salvific document pertaining to salvation. It does not offer salvation in that limited scope of the understanding of walking into the Torah rather rotely or rather um, perfunctorily. Hashem clearly outlines step by step what will happen when and if the house of Israel follows his laws. He also clearly outlines the consequences of disobedience, right? It's right here in the Tohaha of Leviticus chapter 26. History has proven That Am Yisrael failed to heed Hashem's dire warning of punishment and indeed sunk to the absolute depravity of even consuming their own offspring from fear and want of food. And You can read Leviticus chapter 26 and down in verse 27 through 29 in the Tohachah we see that Israel would sink to the very absolute low point of consuming their own children because they didn't have anything else to eat. Um, resorting to cannibalism, and not just any kind of cannibalism, but eating their own children. It's very disgusting. So, the Torah gives us proper warning in advance of what will happen if we disobey. And it motivates us towards obedience by giving us the reward for obedience. If we obey, reward will follow. Blessings will follow if we willfully turn our hearts against God's ways and and begin to disobey God, if our hearts turn cold and obedience follows, then guess what will follow after dis- I'm sorry disobedience follows then what follows after disobedience, punishment, lack of blessing, withholding of, of of goodness and and ultimately what we call curse. so you could ask yourself the question, well gosh, Israel, if you had all the warning right in advance before you went headlong into idolatry. Why didn't you keep his ways? What exactly was the problem? This next section is going to deal with that topic. And the next section is entitled, What exactly is the problem? Why couldn't Israel obey is what I'm trying to get at. Let's go over there. Is Judaism guilty of turning the Torah into a legalistic document? That's my my first question. Now, sadly, much of Christianity would affirm yes. Right away, they would say, oh yeah... The, the 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 historic jews they sought to keep the torah so they could be saved and paul had to come along and tell them that the torah can't save you well unfortunately the problem with that simplistic explanation is that the first century israel that paul was writing to did not simplistically believe such a teaching they did not believe that if they simplistically simplistically walked into the torah that it would afford them some sort of salvation instead as we 're going to find out later on, it had to do it had, it had more to do with do, with being than it had to do with doing okay most ancient Israelites, particularly the first century set, felt that merely by being born, uh, being born into Jewish lineage afforded them a place in the world to come rather than doing the Torah, they simply engineered a, a philosophy or engineered a teaching it 's still incorrect and it still falls under the category of legalism but it 's a different type of legalism if you follow my, what i 'm trying to say here. They engineered a teaching that said all we have to do is be Jews. For the Gentile, not born of Jewish stock, this place could secured could be secured by becoming a Jew. This is what they taught. Again, it, I don't I don't believe the teaching, but I do follow history, and this is what history has has shown us. Um, so, their teaching that the Gentiles, not born Jewish, could secure a place in the world to come. Uh, by becoming a Jew, which is something possible by undergoing the ritual of the proselyte. Now, if you're confused as to what I'm introducing to you as far as this concept of the proselyte, then I want you to read my commentary to Galatians, available at our website at grafton.com. You're going to get a full explanation of the first century problems. Or, if the Galatians commentary is too long, because it's easily 50 pages, drop down in that same webpage to the uh, commentary entitled, What's Bothering Paul?, it's only about nine pages, I think, eight or nine. It's a snapshot of the of the Galatians material, pulling quotes from the Galatians material to give you an overview. And so what I'm going to do here in my commentary is I'm going to pull in some information from the Galatians commentary as well as information from the introduction to my Shomer Mitzvot series in an effort to explain to my new readers and my new listeners this concept uh, that was facing the first-century Judaism. I just want you to know right up front, as I read Paul's writings and as I see the problems that he dealt with Number one, I do not espouse to any sort of legalism that teaches that if I walk into the Torah, I'll be saved. To be sure, Paul didn't espouse to it, and neither did any of the first century Judaisms. However, what the problem is, is that they were centered, they had their their, their attention f- focused on who they were, and thus, as Jews, they felt that that alone, that fact alone, merited them a place in the world to come. So I must state right up front that I do not, I, are Ill, do not espouse to any such Quote, Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. End quote. I have nothing against Jewish people. I have nothing against Jewishness. I have nothing against Jewish identity. I might add, I have nothing against conversion to Judaism. However, a misuse of one's identity is a serious problem. Now, some in Judaism today are guilty, not talking about first century Judaism right now, I'm talking about 21st century Judaism. Some in Judaism today are guilty of making the Torah a quote unquote works. Based teaching that is to say their focus on doing many in the church by the way are also guilty of misunderstanding the Torah in the sense that they feel that if I do such and such if I go to church read my Bible pray three times a day then God's going to accept me somehow that is to say on a forensic basis to be sure many Christians have swallowed the hellish lie that the Torah has been done away with the coming of Yeshua That is a primary problem in the Christian churches today. The prevailing theology that teaches that the Torah is no longer relevant for a follower of Yeshua, a follower of Jesus, whether he be Jewish or Gentile, um, doesn't have to keep the Torah, doesn't need to concern himself with the uh, precepts and the commandments of the Torah. And that is a very unfortunate shame that the teachers in the church have handed this teaching down from one, one generation to the next. And if I compare both opinions, where I've got the first-century Judaism's, who uh, I'm sorry, if I've got the 21st-century Judaism's who believe that if I keep the Torah, I'll be, I'll, I'll gain a place in the world to come, and I compare that to some of the 21st-century Christians who also believe that if I just somehow. Um, be good enough that God is going to accept me, you know, just love my neighbor and and do the right thing, that God's going to accept me, then you know what? I'm quite amazed. I shake my head at both opinions because both opinions are missing the mark. Where does the misunderstanding that the Torah is a document of legalism and not grace stem from? Where do we get this misunderstanding? Well, I believe it stems from a human misunderstanding of the purposes and the calling of Hashem. Hashem calls us. He has a purpose for our lives. And if we misunderstand that central feature, then we're going to misunderstand the writing of the Torah as well. So let us uncover a safe middle ground, as I would say, of understanding between these poles called legalism and lawlessness. Legalism is the ditch that says, if I do X, Y, Z, God will accept me. Lawlessness is the, is the ditch that says, oh no, it's all done away with. God doesn't care what I do, I'm under grace. We've got two ditches to avoid, okay? I want to avoid either one of those ditches. I want to ride the high ground, the middle ground, the safe ground of truth. I don't want to fall into the ditch of legalism, which teaches I have to perform my way into heaven. And I don't want to fall into the ditch of lawlessness that says I can just do whatever I want and I'll get in as long as I believe in Jesus. Okay, are you guys following me so far? When an individual misappropriates the true intent of the gracious teachings of the Torah, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, then he is a prime target for the misguided heresy called legalism okay and that is again a primary focus of my commentaries is trying to re-educate not only myself but re-educate anyone who studies along with me if I'm talking to Jewish people I need to explain to them that the Torah is not a salvific document if they follow that vein of uh, or follow that line of reasoning or if they follow the lie that says that from Jewish I'm in I need to explain to them that Jewishness alone is not gonna get you in conversely I speak to many Christians all a lot especially within uh, my own community, because I don't live in a Jewish community. I live uh, around more Christians than I do more Jews. And in speaking to many Christians, I have to explain over and over again that the Torah has not been done away with now that Jesus has come. So with these two topics at hand, uh, legalism and lawlessness, we're going to turn to a discussion on the commandments themselves, because our Torah portion is called Bechukotai, God's ordinances and in dealing with God's ordinances we have to understand why God would allow us to fall into the position of cursing if we fell into disobedience as well as why he would bring the blessing if we continue to obey so this next section in part c is going to deal with um the the commandments themselves and our responsibility to the commandments and i'm going to call this let this next section shomer mitzvot so stay tuned